Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent, and Jennifer Thompson, retail banking correspondent. This week, we'll take a look at Barclays reaching the end of an era as Rich Ritchie and Tom Kalaris, the two most senior executives from Bob Diamond's era in charge of the bank, are retiring. We'll review last week's US bank results, which saw Goldman Sachs earnings beat expectations, Citigroup report its highest profits for three years, and cost-cutting, boosting JP Morgan and Wells Fargo. And we'll discuss banks putting a dampener on George Osborne's hopes in the UK that an expansion of the funding for lending scheme will spark a rush of credit to small and medium-sized companies. First, though, to Barclays. Daniel, it was a pretty eventful week last week, wasn't it? I guess we'd known for a while that some of these executives were unlikely to last that long. But Rich Ritchie, the investment banking boss, and Tom Kalaris, who had headed wealth management, going quite suddenly, really. I suppose ever since Anthony Jenkins came in last summer, people have been expecting him to change the guard. But then uh, to do it now was maybe sooner than someone expected him. I think, as you're saying, it was expected. It was just a question of the timing. What was clear when Anthony Jenkins came in is he can't change the whole management team in one go. And Sir David Walker, the chairman who brought in Anthony Jenkins from the position of head of retail to become CEO, he couldn't have changed the whole management in one go because it would have been too disruptive. In and particular, the investment bank, yeah, right? Particularly, the yeah. investment bank was a very sensitive issue for Barclays in that Barclays in 2008 bought the former Lehman Brothers operations in the US and and Rich Ritchie has been one of the people if not after the departure of Bob Diamond the person who has held that together and who was seen sort of if if he would have had to go straight away then it would have caused a lot of disruption at the US business there, there would have been the risk that people senior people might have left and has that um, risk gone now do you think I think it's still, to a degree, it's still there, but it's much, much less than it would have been if Rich Ritchie would have left, say, half a year ago. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, Anthony Jenkins, in the past nine months or so since he came in, he's made it very clear that he, he wants to keep a strong investment bank at Barclays. So that's sort of soothing to the investment bankers in Mm -hmm. in the US. He he said, you know, in in his project Transform, which he announced two months ago, he didn't really make significant cuts at the US operations of the investment bank in particular. And the second thing why I think the risk is much, much lower is that the people he brought into charge now to head the investment bank are people who are well-known within the U.S. operation. I mean, Tom King, he is an American citizen. While he built up the EMEA business in the past few years, he's quite well-respected at the U.S. operations, and he headed the investment banking division globally already, and he actually relocated to the U.S. at the beginning of the year. And also... The other key person is Skip McGee, who's based in New York and who was 
seen as a candidate to head the investment bank as well. But while he didn't get the job, he was promoted to become CEO of the Americas as a whole. So so that's a good sign for bankers in New York as well. And Skip McGee was an old Lehman Brothers guy. Yeah. So his promotion should keep people happy. You mentioned the appointment of Tom King there to head the investment bank. He's the co-head alongside Eric Bomansath, who's a French banker, but who is interesting in the sense that his appointment doesn't exactly signal a departure from the old Bob Diamond regime because he was actually one of Bob Diamond's key recruits back in 1997 when he was building up that bank. Yes, that's very much true. But I think this has been very much a promotion based on the in-depth knowledge he's got about the trading business. You know, the markets business is a very particular business where you really need an insider to lead it. And yeah. it's difficult to get somebody from outside to have that. Now, the timing of this is all interesting. Jenny, you're due to go to the Barclays annual general meeting this week, and not, I think, because you uh, have any shares in Barclays, but because you are going to cover it for us. But it's interesting timing, isn't it? That The change of, of the guard, both at the investment bank and in wealth management. Also on Monday, we've had two new appointments to the board, two new non-executives appointed. It does seem as if Sir David Walker as chairman and, and Anthony Jenkins as chief exec have kind of cleaned the slate ahead of this age. GM. And do you think investors are going to be appeased after last last year was a pretty feisty meeting? I think, yes. I mean, the last few months have certainly been tired ones for Barclays. I mean, there are going to be two big differences between this year's AGM and last year's. Of course, last year was very stormy. There was something of a mini shareholder rebellion over the size of Bob Diamond, the former chief executive's pay award. He was in line for a bonus of, of nearly £3 million, But more controversially, there was a £6 million payout to sort out uh, duplicate tax liabilities when he transferred from the States to London. Which they seem to be trying to hide. It was just disclosed in a little footnote, wasn't it? Which uh, yeah, never goes it, down well with shareholders. Nevertheless, about a third of shareholders did notice that and they, yes. they voted against it. I mean, obviously, that, that that issue won't come up again this year. And Anthony Jenkins has you know, already said he's going to renounce his bonus for last year. But added to that, for investors, they're starting to see better signs of growth at Barclays. The share price has gained about 40% since the LIBOR scandal broke. And uh, Anthony Jenkins recently promised a great dividend payout ratio going from about 19% to 30% over the next couple of years. So in general, based on the numbers, investors should be pretty pleased. Whether or not they might be a little cynical over pledges to entirely transform Barclays culture is another question. But in general, we'd be surprised to see the kind of storms we've seen at Barclays AGMs in recent years. Yes, the very fair point. It's obviously a bit of a balancing act anyway for shareholders between uh, to what extent do you want a bank to clean up so much that it fixes its reputational issues, but clearly not too much so that it undermines its profit flows. Anyway, we'll watch that AGM this week. Our second topic for the day is a look back at the US bank's earnings last week. It was a pretty busy week, Daniel. I think all the banks reported, all the big banks reported last week. It wasn't really a, a common theme, was there? I mean, the, some seem to do really well, some less well. There are a few themes that I can try and pull together, at least from it. One is, I think, all of them, the, the improvement in results was partly based on cost cutting and uh, cutting expenses, particularly for compensation. Mm-hmm. So we've seen, again, come to revenue ratios going down at some of the major banks. So that was one common theme. We've seen some banks like JP Morgan, for instance, reporting record earnings. 
and then others like Morgan Stanley facing problems, particularly on the investment banking side. If I look at investment banking, there's one major common theme, which is that the trading side of the business has actually gone down quite quite significantly for all of them, really. There are estimates saying that it's more than 10% in fixed income trading and equity trading, and more is that than 10% mi- down on the year before. Is that just a, a cyclical impact effect as the thing that affects banks for every quarter? The worrying, slightly worrying thing about it is the first quarter should be the strongest in terms of trading. So it doesn't really bode well for the year before. Mm-hmm. Having said that, the comparison is the first quarter of 2012, where we've seen a boost to fixed income trading in particular due to you know renewed optimism at the beginning of the year 2012, which then slowly eroded during the course of the year, yeah. which a trend that we've again seen in the first quarter of this year. January was actually a very good month. But the confidence but, disappeared yeah, quicker this year than yeah, it did last yeah. year, basically. And there's one bright spot for the banks, which is the advisory business, where uh, particularly equity capital markets and debt capital markets have fared really well. Yeah, new um, issuance there was, was yeah, pretty it was, strong. Uh, yeah, it was yeah. pretty strong. And despite some, some mega deals, uh, M&A wasn't really that strong on that side. No. But but ECM and DCM has helped to held up that business. And a, and a final word on, on the results. What do they say about the upcoming results for Europe? Well, two things. One is that the U.S. banks themselves have complained that what has held them slightly back in the first quarter is the weak environment in Europe still. So so that doesn't bode well for the European banks. Secondly, on the investment banking side, we'll see that some banks have profited from the strong advisory businesses. And those banks that are strong in fixed income trading might be hit slightly harder than others in the first quarter. So Barclays and uh, Deutsche Bank might face some difficulties in on the trading side, whereas Credit Suisse, for instance, which is strong in equities and also strong in the fixed income areas that have performed well in the first quarter, might show some better results. Well, maybe that'll be the thing to take the gloss off uh, Barclays AGM this week. They're they're reporting their Mm -hmm. first quarter results the day before. We should move on to our final topic. Jenny, back to you. The UK funding for lending scheme uh, has been in the news over the weekend. Suggestions that George Osborne, the Chancellor, and the Bank of England are finalising plans to expand that scheme, basically broaden out who can tap it but also maybe extend it as well and make some other tweaks. What do you think is really going to happen? What, what is the outlook for this scheme? It's, it's hardly been a resounding success until now. Well, no, but it, to be fair to it, it is early days. I mean, on the extension point, I think that has been on the cards for quite some time. It took on a new political edge over the weekend. Obviously, the Chancellor's under enormous pressure to prove that austerity isn't the only thing he has on his mind. And obviously, FLS is all about spurring credit creation. So this is making cheaper funds available to banks who will then lower rates, which will then be passed on to uh, borrowers. So people will buy more homes and businesses will hopefully invest and create more jobs. Just quickly on that, the data that we've got, as you say, is limited so far because it hasn't been going that long. And it has been reasonably successful at boosting volumes in the mortgage market, but far less so in the SME. Yeah, it's not exactly clear so far. I mean, the first sort of quarter where you would have seen a kind of tangible impact from FLS, so the last 
three months of last year, of course, it was announced in July, you actually had a £2.4 billion contraction in net lending. And the consensus from you know various sources of data from banks, from mortgage companies, is that mortgage rates have come down and volumes of that are going up. But net lending to businesses is still in decline or is, is flat at best. And the question everyone is asking now is, can this situation change? But most people, and satisfying as the answer is, say, we just need to, to sit tight and see. I mean, a couple of the banks I spoke to, one said, well, it's still declining, but we expect it to be roughly flat. The other one was expecting a slight uptick, but that was just based on looking at their pipeline of lending. I mean, one point worth making is that mortgage lending and SME lending are very different beasts. Mortgage lending, you'd expect to see a, a positive impact sooner simply because mortgage products are more standardised. There's a shorter lag time between application and, and actually getting the mortgage. And it's far easier for banks to make those credit decisions. For SMEs, it's a little more complex. And of course, a homeowner might they either need a mortgage or they don't for a business. It's, it's, it takes a little bit longer, perhaps in the uh, the business planning side. But as somebody told me yesterday, that excuse or explanation perhaps is, is wearing a little thin. And there is, of course, the added complexity in the SME market of general confidence and the economic outlook and, and people not wanting to press the button on investment and therefore borrow until they're, they're pretty certain there's a turn in fortunes coming. Well, it's a pretty complex picture. I mean, that's what the banks like to say. And of course, some bankers are completely off the record, of course, have pointed out that, you know, perhaps lending to SMEs, one called it the cult of the SME, you know, isn't necessarily such a good idea for the sake of it, because there's a very good reason people wouldn't want to do that. It's a very, very complicated picture. I mean, on the actual demand side, some businesses, it is true, are probably sitting on quite a lot of cash. They want to invest very prudently. You know, they might want to invest quite a lot, but they're just not seeing the consumer or the, the public demand beyond that for their, their products or services. Others are saying we want to apply, but we're not quite sure, you know, what's going on. I mean, there's just been so much happening over the past couple of years, so much political will behind getting banks to lend and, and a number of schemes. And one of the criticisms perhaps is that things need to be a bit clearer and promoted more clearly for businesses to actually understand what's available to them. We should make one final point on this whole story, which I think is right to say this is due to be announced, this whole uh, tweaking of the FLS scheme within the next couple of weeks. But there's some suggestion that our economics editor, Chris Giles, picked up at meetings around the IMF over the past few days was that a deal may be done between the Treasury and the IMF to stave off critical IMF comments around the UK economy if the FLS is tweaked in such a way that the IMF is encouraged that business will be motivated to to borrow and grow through that. So we'll watch that very closely over the next couple of weeks. That's unfortunately it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Daniel and Jennifer for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Katie Carney. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.